Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back, you health renaissance people. Today we're talking about prepping for the challenges and changes, but we're talking mainly about waste and water today. Next time we're going to be talking about uh, food production security and planning for the future. So today it's going to be waste and water. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, why, you know, everything's going good. The news is telling us that the economy is fine, everything else. Um, it, it's not. We're going to bring up some statistics just to make you aware of what really is going on with the planet. Now, there is going to be change, without a doubt. Uh, the economy is going to be changing. The environment's going to be changing. Uh, government control is going to be changing. I, I mean, literally huge things. But let's look at, at what is going on now. The last time we did this series of talks was six years ago, uh, so or seven years ago, actually, in 2000, um, 2012. So now, uh, let's look at a study. And because if if you're not aware of this, currently our government is in a state of shutdown, so they furloughed a bunch of workers. Uh, and think of this. These workers have been furloughed, no pay, for a month so far. Now, out of uh, PressCareerBuilder.com, they did a study back in 2017 and the title of it is, Living Paycheck to Paycheck is a Way of Life for the Majority of the U.S. Workers. What they highlight is 78% of all U.S. workers live paycheck to paycheck. 78%, almost 80%, almost 8 out of 10. And it doesn't really matter the amount of money they make, because nearly 1 in 10 or 10% of people making over $100,000 a year they live paycheck to paycheck. So the more money you take in, the more money you're spending. Heck, one in four workers, 25% of our population doesn't save anything. And three out of four, 75% of all workers today are in debt. Um, more than half think they're always going to be in debt. Uh, so w- we have to change this. Now, according to uh, the United Way, they did a project called ALICE, where they're actually looking for um, financial hardships. And what ALICE is a mnemonic for is Asset Limited Income Constrained and Employed. So this is a, they're, they're looking at all the different aspects of the workers in America, and they found out that 51 million households don't earn enough to afford monthly budget, like um, housing, food, child care, health care, transportation, cell phone. This is huge. 51 million households. That's 43% of all the households in the U.S. Have, are, are, can't even make the minimum. And again, you're not going to be hearing this if you think this is normal. I mean, think back just a few years ago. Uh, when it was standard that the mom would stay home, the dad would go to work, they'd have two kids, they would save for college, that world does not exist anymore. So if you're living in this delusional aspect um, that everything is fine, uh, the the change is coming now. Uh, now, so think of this. Imagine... If you were living in in a space bubble, okay, where you had to be responsible, if the ATM machines shut down, 
okay, literally shut down for, say, two to three days, uh, the majority of people would not have enough finances to um, relay. And I mean no credit cards, no access to cash, nothing. Okay, would, would, let's say there's no electricity. Would you be able to open the ga- garage? Uh, let's say there's no electricity going to the gas pumps. Would you have enough to survive for a drive? Do you have candles and flashlights? Do you have food store? Do you have first aid? Do you have shelter? Uh, well, when you look at our environment, okay, there's a cycle in societies, and I want you to be aware of this because this is like a you know a frog sitting in a pot of water. If the w- heat is slowly turned up, the frog's going to be really comfortable until it eventually dies of heat, um, uh, of being too hot. Uh, and you, heck, you can the frog will sit in there until the water boils, and then it'll die. So let's look at the cycle of societies, and this is going going on for thousands of years. First, our group of people, and it started in small independent communities. You're talking hunter-gatherers. And why? Because it was there's such an abundance of food. And these small independent communities started to develop um, an infrastructure where not everyone needed to be a farmer, not everyone needed to gather food. So then they developed more infrastructure. And up to about communities of 150 people or less, you could do a barter system. Beyond that, communities would need to trade with other communities, and they had to do something other than a barter system. So they would have to make coins or come up with set rates for set things, like like how many apples is a gallon of milk worth. And so you can see that there would be more intricacies. So communities were actually brought together to organize for um, security and also for advancement, and they pooled their resources. The next aspect is the golden age. Now, this is when communities started to establish themselves, and we're talking education, art, expansion. And you can look back through the centuries of communities that have done this. And we're talking Egypt, uh, uh, Greece, Mesopotamia, the, you know, going back as far as you can in, the, in China multiple empires over in that in that neck of the woods. And so some of these empires uh, just had tremendous expansion, fantastic influences on the world. And then eventually, even those great empires exhausted their resources. Could be natural resources, started to bank, bankrupt, they started to force um, their population to do certain things. They enacted more control, and eventually the uh, empires erupted into chaos, where they wouldn't, they they couldn't um, protect their borders or had good infrastructure. And then that group of people, the survivors, broke up into small independent communities. Well, right now we are at the exhaustive, bank, bankrupt, force, chaos phase of societies in America. So when you look around your community, in whatever community you're living in, right now we live in Huntington Beach, and this is where my office is, this is where I'm living. In Huntington Beach, it's almost like an island, because we're surrounded by bridges, we're surrounded by roads, and these roads have overpasses. 
the overpasses and roads, imagine if there was a massive earthquake. I'm talking a 10-pointer. 10, 10 uh, something, and earthquakes are common to our area. So imagine if all the overpasses collapsed, all the bridges collapsed, there'd be no food or water coming into Huntington Beach. Well, most of the supermarkets have about a four-day supply of food if they're not, they're not having a run where people are buying in massive volume. Now, we do have a river coming into Huntington Beach. We've got an ocean. There are some natural springs. There's some fuel, like a little bit of wood. Um, you know, there, there is oil here, although it's literally oil company oil. So first, be prepared uh, look at your environment. So we're prone to earthquakes. We're not prone to tornadoes. In your environment, you may be prone to tornadoes. But look at the natural um, catastrophes that can occur. And some may be well beyond your, um, your, your awareness. Like when Mount St. Helen blew up. Okay, that affected multiple states. If we have a natural disaster of that type of proportion, just realize that water, food, um, you're going to have to be responsible for. And so, so when you look at this, um, food, transportation, water, shelter, waste management, first aid protection, all of those are, are going to be essential, and that's what we're going to be covering. Right now, we're just going to be talking about water and waste management. The reason I talk so much at the, at the start is to make you aware that there's, there's problems that are coming. It's not if the society is going to change. It absolutely is changing. And I brought up the economics right now to make you more aware of that. <laughs> it, just, just prepare. Hopefully... Everything will go along fine. Hopefully the economy will be fantastic. Uh, we'll have, and, and there's going to be a new renaissance throughout the world. I highly doubt it. Particularly when we're talking about global warming and we're talking about a number of different strains on the economy. So let's look at water. What type of sources of water do you have? Well, let's say the water instantly was cut off. Uh, if you're living in a house or a small apartment, there may be a water heater there that will have stored water. Also, if you shut off the water from the city into your house, and you'll see a water shutoff out there, there's a tremendous amount of water in the pipes. It could be as much as a couple of gallons. Now, there's if you're really thirsty... And I'm not talking water in the toilet bowl, but in the back of the toilet, that's actually fresh water. Uh, so in an emergency circumstance, that's ideal. Now, when you're washing dishes, washing your hands, uh, um, showering, that water coming off is called gray water. It has a little bit of soap and some dirt, maybe some food scraps. This is water that you can actually use to flush your toilets. Because the toilets don't operate on electric. They actually operate on um, a gravity-fed water system. So you can save the grave water in order to still utilize the indoor toilets. Which, again, think of the worst-case scenario. Think of your water shutting down. If you have no water in your house for three days, you have one flush uh, so when we talk about waste and water, 
start utilizing the water that you can have. And when you're figuring water, figure at least minimum one gallon a day per person for survival. And if you're using one gallon of water to wash, to bathe, to drink, you're going to be drinking about half a gallon of water, and then the other half, uh, and this is minimal usage. Ideally, you're figuring five gallons of water a day. That would be optimal. Then that'll be very, very comfortable living. Also, you have uh, river water, ocean water, rain water, based on the environment you're in. So look at all of the different sources. Now, if you're getting sources of water from different, uh, um, let's say not not uh, potable water, like you have um, stream, let's say you have uh, something that could have some runoff in it from fields or streets. Uh, there's certain ways that you can do it. You can have a chemical filter, iodine, chlorine. Uh, just note, like tonight, we're going to bring up uh, the chemical aspects on how to filter water. And the mechanical aspects are also vital. So when you're looking at mechanical aspects, you literally want to filter whatever water you have. Like let's say you have pond water. First, you're going to strain it through a cloth. Why? Because that's going to remove branches. It's going to remove some of the um, heavy particulate matter, such as dirt, uh, anything that's floating in there. So filtering it through a cheesecloth or cloth is good. Then you need to use either iodine tablets, which can literally kill bacteria, viruses, even giardia, which is a common bacteria that most rivers and streams are exposed to. Now, iodine tablets... Um, make most uh, bacteria and virus water uh, potable. You can also use bleach, and I mean Clorox bleach, two drops per quart or eight drops per gallon. And then you stir it around and let it sit for about 45 minutes. And uh, then you run it through a charcoal filter to get rid of some of the chlorine and also to filter it further. Now, chlorine actually uses loses its strength or oomph, so you have to double the dose with the old chlorine. Uh, now, chlorine will not reliably kill Giardia or Cryptosporidium, and so these are common things, but iodine will. Now, distilling water. Distilling water is great. You boil it, cool it, and that cooling process, okay, you cool the steam as it comes out of the water, solidifies that water, okay, brings it back from the gaseous state into the solid or into the liquid state, and that literally kills all the bacteria. It's fantastic. So distilling water, at least one gallon a day per person, but that requires an energy source. Solar distilling is amazing. Now think of this. This was first it, um, uh, found out or instituted by a uh, 16th century Arab alchemist. Now the first large-scale solar filter was back in 1872. And think of this. You've got the sun that's always drawing water out. All you need is glass or plastic um, to get in between the water source and the sunlight source. And there's a number of different uh, solar stills that you can get for backpacking, but all it requires is either a plastic bag, plastic sheet, or a glass sheet, uh, along with some tubes and a way to put a water source in. Uh, a number of different things that you can, or uh, 
areas of correcting it. I, I mean, if you look at, at the, the largest solar collector, okay, and this was uh, the first large-scale solar um, uh, distilling project in 1872, it produced 22,000 liters per day and operated up to 40 years. Okay, it had a solar collection of 4,700 square meters. I mean, that's incredible. So we could use the power of the sun to create healthy water. So you can get that um, uh, pond water, and you can filter it out a little bit, put it in an open tray, put some plastic over the top, and make sure that there's some way to capture the water or direct that water that the sun is bringing up. Uh, and we're going to go through a number of different uh, ways to capture that. Also, you can make water filters. Now, this is going to seem like super, super simple, but it involves cloth or screen, charcoal, sand, gravel, um, iodine or chlorine. You could use black mica, a mineral. You can even utilize ceramic Dalton filters. And there's a number of commercial filters out there. Just, again, the way you're going to choose what type of water source you're going to have is you look at your area. If you're on the ocean, you have to have something that's going to be a solar still to get that fresh water out. Or you can distill salt water, which again will get the fresh water out. Or if you have a water maker, that's going to be ideal. But water makers require a huge amount of, of energy to put in there. Uh, now, look at charcoal or carbon. Uh, when you look at charcoal, you can literally make it. If you have a fire, you can uh, create charcoal, and that has been used to treat poisonings, to treat overdoses. Um, charcoal, and this is just burned wood. You can break it off and chew it up and get it in your system. It can literally absorb poisons in the gastrointestinal tract. Typical dosing for charcoal uh, is about one gram per kilogram of body mass. Uh, so for adolescents, adults, you know, you're talking about 100 grams. And usually you only need to give it once. But that's for an acute poisoning, which can literally draw on it. So creating charcoal or carbon is fantastic for first aid as well. Now, waste management. Now remember, think of this. Your water is shut off from your house. Uh, you have one flush. If you're really sharp, you've got... Um, You've got a bucket underneath the sink, the kitchen sink, so that anytime you wash, anytime you um, clean your utensils, that you're going to be using some type of water, either from the water heater or the piping. You're going to be saving that water so you can reuse it in the toilet. That just makes sense. Uh, however, let's say that you run out of that, or, you don't, or you're living in an apartment and you don't have access to get water from another source. Let's say the entire apartment building has one centralized water heater. Uh, so now, what do you do? Think of this. Waste management, and this is one of the reasons that people are living longer now, not from vaccines or medication, but literally how to handle waste. If you've ever heard of cholera, 
okay, or all the diseases that could be brought on from improper waste management, that is one of the major sources of diseases throughout the world. In fact, 6,000 kids die each day because of inadequate sanitation. So what do you got to do? First, isolate. Uh, if you're going to be um, utilizing the waste in a compost pile, you've got to isolate it and allow it to um, break down. Uh, now, it's interesting. Heat will break it down faster. Now, I ju just did a seminar in New Orleans a couple of months back, and what they would do, they would put a, a real dead body inside of uh, a solid uh, either marble or concrete box and it, the box temperature would get up to 200 degrees in the summertime. And what they would do, they'd put the, the body in there. They would wait one year and one day. And by that amount of time, the entire, entire body had decomposed. All of the, the skin and the organ tissue had broken down. And there was just a pile of bones left. They would scrape the bones off and put another body in. And so think of this, as the entire body can decompose in a year, okay, based on heat, that's what happens with waste. And this is where compost piles are so vitally important. Uh, compost piles are essential for building soil and utilizing the waste from the house. Uh, so look into a compost pile, but also realize that composting will generate its own heat, and it may take... Uh, days to weeks to months to break down and make that soil safe. <clears throat> so isolating the material and left compost in isolation without, without contact people until it's fully compostable and safe to handle. You can utilize worms, which will get in there and eat up the, the, the waste products and actually those worms are going to start to convert that waste into a phenomenal soil. Make sure that there's ventilation. Okay, and this is going to be to add oxygen so that you can help with that composting process and it will remove the oil. Now, this is interesting. When you're utilizing a composting toilet or compost system, uh, you have to divert the urine. It should be damp but not too moist. Now, when you're processing um, multiple um, multiple uh, uh, bathroom trips a day, okay, you're going to be producing about a half a gallon of water or of urine a day. So make sure that you separate it. Now, I'm going to show you how to utilize the urine uh, for more fertilization. But make sure you separate it because we want the compost damp but not too moist. The hotter the compost pile, the more quickly the process happens. And in human manure compost pile, um, sh uh, <laughs> uh, if it's not monitored for t high temperatures, it should be. Because if it's isolated for a long time to ensure full uh, decomposition, in a mild climate, it could take as much as a year. In cold climates, it could take as much as two years. So you can put it a little mini hothouse if you're living in a colder climate to break it down. Uh, and, and just keep thinking about it. You've got 30 days you could survive without food, about two to four days without water, uh, about five minutes without oxygen, and about two to three seconds without nerve supply. So water is the 
um, like the easy one to solve right now. Now, if you have water, boiling water is easy. However, this requires a heat source. And I'm going to bring a couple, but typically at sea level, in order to make sure the water is safe, you need about um, 30 minutes of boiling at sea level to make sure that the water is safe and pure and, and pure enough to drink. There's also portable water-saving bottles, and these are lifesaver bottles. Now, these run from 150 to 250 bottles, and they can filter out objects as, as small as 15 nanometers. And this is used in a lot of developing nations that have problems with water. And they even have portable water bottles, which I totally recommend. Uh, black mica, again, this is great for your to-go bag if you have um, a bag that you can get out with. Like if there's an EMP, you're not going to be using your, your car. And that means an electromagnetic pulse that pretty much fries any electronics that are still working. So this means a battery-operated light would be really good, some type of flame source, but a backpack to carry this stuff on your way to go. And what I mean that is you need to have a primary, secondary, and tertiary plan so let's say your idea is to get in your car and drive to Uncle Harry's, which is three, three hours away. You know, Uncle Harry's that crazy prepper. Um, let's say, bam, EMP, the roads are wiped out, um, an earthquake, it disrupts the, the road system, and there's no way, um, since it's a four-hour drive away, it's about 200 miles. The average person can hike with a backpack comfortably about 25 to 50 miles a day. So you're looking at a four to five day trek to get to Uncle Harry's. And if you're going through Los Angeles or a highly populated area, that would be quite dangerous, particularly in an event of a natural disaster. So you want to avoid highly populated areas. And so you need a plan B. A plan B could be, um, say, an older car that doesn't have a computer or hiking somewhere or forming a group in your community uh, that you pool together your resources so they can survive. And that would be the, the smartest. And so when we look at this, utilization of the urine, use it as fertilizer. And urine is pretty easy to, to um, purify. Once it leaves the body, it's fairly acidic. And the pH, it starts to become alkaline pretty darn quickly. Um, and you'll see, just letting it sit takes around uh, 15 days to three months to just letting it sit. But if you're going to use it for uh, fertilizer, Dilute it one part of urine to three uh, to six parts of water, and then you pour it in soil around the plants. It's amazing. It works fantastically well. The key is be aware of your surroundings and get used to um, get used to changes. So if you're depending on your car to get transportation, if the car is not there, look for bicycles. If the, or, or look for a car that, that is an older vehicle that is not going to be negatively affected by an EMP. If the road systems are trashed, uh, look at hiking. 
look at swimming, look at boating, look at other aspects of transportation, uh, look at, uh, depend on public transportation not being there, and look for areas that you could set up that are safe. Because when you're talking uh, four days without food or water, particularly in highly populated or high um, concentrations of population, it can be dangerous. How do we get out of this? Uh, we clean up the food system by healthy farming practices. And this is what you're going to set up in your new environment, or we can actually change the current one. We can clean up health care, which means you have to have the freedom to choose what's done to your body. And anything that you do that helps your physiology is good. Anything that, do, that harms it is bad. So we're going to be cleaning up the health care system. Environment, energy efficiency, and farming. You're going to see there's so many harmonious ways that you can farm and produce food for a massive population. Do you realize you can have continuous harvest in certain, just, just a square foot gardening method by Merrill Bartholomew? You're talking a family of four could be fed off of just a few hundred square feet. Then you look at politics, the changes. We change this. The infrastructure. Make sure that you have some things that you can negotiate other than cash. Uh, so just be prepared. Um, fortune favors the prepared, absolutely. And we're going to be covering a lot of this tonight in our live broadcasts on Facebook. And then next week it will be posted on um, YouTube. Look around. Be aware. Be prepared. Because it's not just you that you're saving. You're saving your family, your loved ones, and your friends. Just make everyone aware that there are changes absolutely coming. And if you're prepared, you're going to thrive. And that's the key. When we thrive, we're going to actually make the world a considerably better place. This is Dr. John Bergman. God bless you, and I love you.